Tēnā tātou katoa, nau mai ki te rā ākānohi o kōpapa, kōrangi, up or down. Conversations about how we think about the costs of climate change. We welcome you now to the recordings from the in-person symposium for kōpapa, kōrangi, held at Te Papa Tongarewa in Te Whanganui Ātara, Wellington, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our host for the day is Mani Dunlop. In this final session and episode, keynote speaker, economist and finance journalist Shama Bel Yaqub draws together the threads of the day and offers some critical provocations for action. So we have Shama Bel Yaqub here and have given him quite a difficult job and we've asked him to come and listen to the whole day and then respond to a lot of the discussion um, that has been had um, from his particular experience experience and with the provocation will any of these ideas or discussions uh, work. Very humbly Shamibiel was a little reluctant to take on this uh, job of, of being a keynote speaker but sometimes as organisers we have uh, instinct in our puku, um, and especially when it's informed by research and evidence is sometimes the final decision making factor. So please make Shamibiel feel very welcome uh, but don't hold the challenge to a Account for any of the things that he has to say. <laughs> Shami Bill, please come to the stage, my friend. Thanks, Mani. Um, <clears throat> I was quite resistant to come today, and the reason for that is because there's a lot of smart people in this room. Usually, I have a, bit, a room full of business people. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Now, it's a really hard job uh, summarizing today. And the big reason for that is there are just so many questions. I don't think we landed on the answers. And that's okay. But the biggest question that came through a lot of the conversations today was really around, are we ready to stop being a Band-Aid nation? Everything is, she'll be right. And we are instinctively all about being reactive and not being about proactive. The other question that was really quite big and quite stark underlying a lot of the conversation was, was what is the counterfactual? When we ask the question always, what is the cost of adaptation? The question that we're asking is, what, is the, what are the futures that we're choosing from? At the moment, it sounds like what we're saying is we're choosing between the status quo and something else. That is not true. We're choosing between catastrophe and a better future. Those are the investments that we have to make today. One is a cost of inaction, and the other is a cost of success. They're not the same things. And by not presenting the counterfactuals, the alternative features, the scenarios that are in front of us, clearly and deliberately, we are misleading the public of New Zealand. We have no choices in front of us that are good without a change in the way that we do things. And one of the choices that are in front of us, doing nothing is an option, but is a terrible option. We cannot be good ancestors for our children and for our grandchildren if we do nothing. But also, not everything must have a 100% solution. David told us that it's all about complexity, that we don't know. And so it's better that we start acting and put in some 10 and 20% solutions just to see if they work. I want people to get engaged in the process and start acting on it because the reality is when we start seeing results and those results will not simply be in adaptation, it's also going to be in the, uh, in the engagement in our communities that we will start to see some outcomes. Okay. Um, I don't know if anybody was at the Waihanga conference uh, on Monday. Anybody? 
Sorry, you're probably gonna. I'm probably gonna say a lot of stuff today that's exactly the same. Um, probably all the all the also the same jokes. Um, just try and laugh along. It's okay. But Belinda spoke at that conference, and you know what? It scared the bejesus out of me. When you think about the consequences of the types of climate risks that will come on our infrastructure, it is extraordinary. But the problem is when we talk about infrastructure, it's not real. It's not human. It's not relatable. We have to do so much better in framing the narratives because fundamentally what we're talking about is the impact on our people. And yet we haven't really talked about the impact on our people and how they're going to live because planet Earth will be fine. In millennia from now, when we're not here, the Earth will still be here. I mean, we could probably blow it up, but we probably shouldn't. The big questions that also came up in a lot of the other conversations were around who bears the risk? Is it going to be the gov government? Is it going to be somebody else? Is it going to be the collective or is it going to be the individual? Is it going to be the present generations or will we save up all the costs for future generations? Because those are the questions that we are asking in many of the conversations we had today. When I listened to some of the conversations at the tables, I also heard how do we remove politics from the big decisions that have to be made? Because that was at the core of what you were talking about, that politics, the short-termism is getting in the way of making those big decisions. And it can't be that politics is just about ribbon cutting, but it does feel like that that's what it's about at the moment. Unless there is an announcement with a thing to do at the end of it, nobody wants a bar of it. Um, I can't remember who said, uh, was uh, somebody was on the panel and they said, well, you know, we trade off, well, it was Joe, wasn't it? We trade off inflation with climate change, as if, as if the inflation has no link to the devastation that we're causing to Mother Earth. But it also can't be that when we think about the actions that we take, that it's all about ass covering, right? What we find in local government and in government planning processes, that when it comes to dealing with things like climate change, we're going to now have tens of thousands of pages of documents because that's how we justify why we're doing something. We're tying ourselves in knots in justifying why we must act or why we must not act and it gets in the way of actually doing the thing. And I think we can't do this until, until we have political leadership, and that's going to be really hard. We know that what we do, how we do things currently isn't the ideal, and the reason why that is the case is because we cannot create consensus. That is the fundamental core thing that you guys were all talking about today, that in New Zealand today, we do not have a consensus view of what climate change and climate adaptation means and how and who is going to pay for it. Until we can do that, we're not going to be able to make a shift. I put up this picture behind me for a very deliberate reason. I did a really fun piece of work um, last year with MB and um, the brief was, can you help Wellington understand Tuhoe's perspective, perspective of Tikanga? Now, it's a very difficult, difficult job. Um, it mainly involved me sitting in Tanya Tua and just hoping that, you know, people will not uh, hurt me. Because, you know, who's this brown guy that turns up and pretends to know about Tikanga? Well, I don't know anything about it. But my job wasn't to understand what Tikanga meant for Tuhoi. My job was to go, why can't Pākehā understand what Tikanga means in Wellington? So let me give you a sense of why these things are so difficult. 
on the right hand side is essentially the idealized picture of success in the Pakia world. On the left hand side is the idealized picture of success for Tuhoi. Our goals are different. Our endpoints are different. Our lenses are different. When you shift your perspective, what you realize is we're not even driving to the same destination. I mentioned before that's exactly what is happening today in terms of when we think about the choices that are in front of us. We think that we're choosing between the status quo and a different future. We're not. We're choosing between a terrible future and a better future. But that's not obvious to us. And that's what we found when we did that work with Tuhoi, was that we have similar words, but we mean different things. Everyone in this room understands the trade-offs that are in front of you. But when we talk about adaptations and the choices that are in front of us, that's not what people in New Zealand hear. I don't think they engage in the same way. And it's also true that when we talk about words and resources, we have very different perspectives. And I think Tikanga does give us a lens to think about these things. So when we think about our natural assets or built assets, a lot of the language that we talk about are very much about property rights and responsibilities, right? That's very familiar. That's very legal. That's what's enforced through our courts. But when I was talking to the people in Tuhoi, they told me it was about responsibilities and privileges. Notice the order. Responsibilities first and then the privilege to use the resources. It shifts the perspective of how we think about what's important. We also know we talked a lot about the collective today. When we think about the collective in the orthodox view, in our existing viewpoint, it's very much the sum total of the success of individuals equals the success of the collective. Tikanga is not that. Te Amari is not that. Te Amari flips it. It's the collective success that allows the success of individuals. This matters because when you want to raise taxes or you want to do collective action, only when you decide that it's the collective first, that it works. But it's also true that the way we th uh, think about our costs and benefits, I'm talking to my fellow economists in the room, we're terrible people, right? Because we can only count the things that we can see. But that's our job. We know there are a lot of things we're not counting, and that's okay. But we still have to place some value and importance on those things. And that is what those wider perspectives like Tikanga does, the, the Te Aumari does, is it thinks of the world across time, across space, across the web. Whereas when we are thinking about our economy in the orthodox view, it is one single thread of that spider web. And one big thing that shifts everything, if you think about climate change and Tikanga versus the orthodox viewpoint, is our view of the future. We see the world standing here looking out. It's the, it's the telescope to our eye. We are on this side. Te Aumari is starting from the other side. They're at the destination looking back, not standing here looking out. And what that means is that when economists like me do business cases, you use a discount rate that's completely different. The discount rates that we use essentially say, by definition, by mathematical definition, that future costs and benefits are worth less. How can we give true value to the costs and benefits that lie in the future in these catastrophic distributions of risk when we have discounted the hell out of them? They mean nothing today because I'm not the one who's going to bear those costs. I'm not the one who's going to enjoy those benefits. I'm going to be dead. 
But that is the reality. We're talking about centuries, and yet we're saying we will not invest for the future because it does not benefit me. If you go to Auckland and look at the water dams in Auckland, did our forefathers and ancestors really build those uh, dams 100 years ago thinking, oh, isn't it terrible? I won't be able to enjoy it, so I'm not going to build it big enough? No, because they weren't selfish pricks. <laughs> now, it's really about the greater focus on the collective. It's about not discounting the future. It is about a whole bunch of other things, about culture and spirituality. You know, the fact that Maori don't separate the physical and the spiritual means that polluting the earth, you know, destroying the infrastructure of our, of our natural well-being, our ecology, you can't make it up. You can't pollute here and make it up over there. Those two things don't add up. It just doesn't work. But yet what we have done in our economic systems is we have made it fungible. We have sliced and diced it and go, well, you can fuck it, fuck it up over there. If you just pay a bit of tax or a bit of restoration over here, in total, it's going to be okay. Well, it turns out no, because that's how we got here. And I'd like you to think that the reason why we're in this position is very much because we have tried to separate so much of these complex systems into simple stories about how things work. And that simplification and oversimplification gets in the way of that complexity that David and others have already talked about. It's really, really difficult to ma make that shift. But we also know that shifting from here to the future, which what this, was, this conversation was really meant to be about, is really hard. I was doing a conversation uh, recently, uh, a conference recently, and um, I heard Melissa Clark Reynolds uh, speak. And she was great. I love her because, you know, she's one of those people who just throw lobs and these grenades into the room, right? And she had this one cool framework, and she talked about, you know, every decision that we make, if you think about the future, it's shaped by the weight of history, the push of the present, and the pull of the future. The push of the, the weight of history is the codified ways of our culture, our rules, our regulations, all the things that kind of dominate the way that we do things today. It's the anchor that stops us from making change. But we know from the experiences with Cyclone Gabrielle, the earthquakes, the floods, that there is this uncomfortable truths that the present is telling us, this ain't working, guys. We got to do something different. And the future, which is very uncertain, right? There are multiple futures that are possible out there. It's telling us that come towards us, do something different, but you're going to have to build your way to this better future. It's not going to happen by doing nothing. And that is the challenge for us, is how do we find the limits of our imagination that is not dogged by the history, but by shaped by the future? Now, I think we're going to be really forced to make these decisions, and we are going to be forced not just because of climate change, but also because of aging. We know there are some huge shifts that are going to happen in our society over the coming years. Um, as you know, New Zealand is getting older, quite a bit older. I mean, you can tell a little bit of that by looking at this room. Um, I wish we had a few more younger people, because the reality is that this is the last year that we're going to have more entrance into the labor force than retirees. New Zealand is going to get older and older and older from here on in. And that means our tax system, our political system, our social system is going to come under severe pressure at the same time as the rising costs and disruptions of climate change. We're heading into this period of extraordinary, extraordinary stress. And it could go in any direction. And I say that because we know that politics at the moment is just so fractured. And I'm going to touch on politics, not just because of the election year, but because 
fundamentally the big decisions that we need to make are about collective decisions. And collective decisions are done by democracy and through politics. And yet we know that it's going to be very hard to find that big, broad consensus in our country unless we do something differently. And I say this because if you think of the last two big changes in the ways that we think about the economy happened post-Second World War and post-Maldun, right? I mean, isn't it extraordinary that you have to compare Maldun to a war? <laughs> uh, but, you know, part of the reason why we were able to make that big shift was there was a collective imagination that was shared by a big group of people. At the time after the Second World War, about half of the voter base, voting population, were the greatest generation. Um, similar kind of proportion in terms of the boomers when the reforms happened in the 80s. So there was this mass of people who all shared a similar kind of viewpoint, a similar kind of aspiration. There is no large group like that today. Our population is fractured by age. It is fractured by rich versus poor. It is fractured by people who are urban versus rural, young versus old. And within these fractures in our community and our population and our voter base, we are going to find it really, really hard to reach consensus. And I, might, I, I find that really frightening because everything that I've heard today is we know what to do when it comes to adaptation. But how will we do it if we don't agree what to do? So what are the actions? Um, you know, the question that was posed for me is an extraordinarily difficult one, right? Can we actually do what's required for adaptation? Well, if you look at the evidence that's in front of us, what we did after the earthquakes in Christchurch, what we've done after the floods in Auckland, the cyclone, Gabriel, the answer is kinder, right? We, in, in Christchurch, it's a very good example where we did walk away from some of those very badly affected areas and we built elsewhere. But where did we build? In two big satellite cities connected by motorways. Good thinking, guys, right? Let's lock in those emissions for 100 years. We are going to repair a bunch of roads and a bunch of bridges and a bunch of houses in places where they will flood again. What have we learned from the events that have gone before? We are a band-aid nation because we keep doing more of the same. Yes, we will adapt, but we will keep doing it in a really bad way until we learn from the lessons that le the nature is teaching us the very moment, right? We have to not just do the reaction. We also have to go, how are we going to do this differently in the future? If we start with the idea that adaptation is really about people, that what we don't want is to create these ghettos where our poor people, poor and vulnerable people will end up. If we start with that assumption, I think it becomes a lot easier to ask about what are the other kinds of things we might do. And I think the big thing that really comes through is prioritization, right? Um, I think you know, from across the panels, we heard we need evidence. We need data, I heard, right? Yes, of course we do. Uh, but we also need to make sure those the decisions that we make are efficient and they're equitable. And what I kind of heard, I'm really paraphrasing here because nobody in this room would use the language that I do. But we've got to say no to stupid, right? We do a lot of stuff that's stupid. When you rebuild things in flood-prone areas, when you rebuild bridges that have already been washed away, that is stupid. We have to say no to that. But also we have to say yes to the no-brainers. There are things that we can do, like not building on flood-prone lands that we are still doing today. That's a no-brainer. We should do the things that we can do more. We should absolutely 
absolutely densify around areas where we have lots of transport and other bits and pieces. We also need to be really mindful, and I was reading some of the literature that was in the back of the room, is how do we, how do we create justice in this adaptation? And in, as economists would quite often use the word equity, but let's use real words. What does equity mean? Equity means that it's not racist, that it's not sexist, that it's not ageist. The reality is that the challenges that we face is we have so much, so much racism, so much sexism, so much ageism built into the actions that we take. These are deliberate choices that we're making every single day. And until we recognize that's what we're doing, we're not going to be able to sh do that. A lot of the decisions that we're going to make around adaptations are, are around reshaping what we do. And a lot of it's going to be about doing new, new things. And I think, David, you were saying that. You know, adaptation's not just about the existing infrastructure. A lot of it's about new investments that we have to make in our country, in our people, in our communities. But the, what's really unclear is that uncertainty that we heard about, that the trade-offs that we're making, they're not clear. They're not well articulated. I'm not, you're not painting a picture for me that compels me to go, you can choose between this catastrophe where our poor people who are largely going to be Maori and Pacifica, who are largely going to be single mothers, we're going to put them in these ghettos. Are you okay with that? That is the reality that we choose versus something different. Make it real, guys, because otherwise we're not going to get people across. And we have to think very differently about short-term costs versus the whole-of-life costs. We have to learn lessons because it's not enough for us to be able to do things differently. I showed you, I show you this picture because I think fundamentally it's about shifting our lens. It's about shifting our perspective. The reality is what I heard today is not going to be possible. Not, it's not going to be possible if we don't take New Zealand with us. And at the moment, New Zealand is not with us. You can see it in the politics. You can see it in the separatism. You can see it in the absolute tensions that exist in our community today. So what do we need to do? Is there anything that I can do that doesn't depress you further? It's a hard ask. I've got some very practical ideas. The first is we have to put engagement at the front. I heard so much about community. And if community is not involved at the beginning and we, we do all our engagements after we have decided what we're going to do to them, somehow it doesn't work so well. Who would have thought? But part of the strategy behind why we should do, do engagement at the front is because until we have grassroots consensus, grassroots desire for things, our politicians will not do it. Our politicians will only do what the polls tell them. They're a bunch of spineless idiots. No, they're not idiots. They're just spineless. It's because our political system encourages and rewards people by being reelected, not by what you do. So unless the people want something, you will not be reelected. So I can see why the incentives are perverse. So we can't change our politicians. Let's try and change our people. We also know that we're not going to be able to make this change if we don't invest in our regulatory and policymaking capability. We have to have more administrative capacity and more expert capacity in our institutions. It is absolutely true that our public, policy, public systems have been hollowed out over a number of decades. The expertise, the independence, that free and frank is really hard to find. And the reality is we need a lot more of it if we're going to deal with the complexity of the types of situations that are coming in front of us 
including in things like climate adaptation. And one of the big things that we're missing when we do pu public policy, both in New Zealand and other places, is, is the lack of coordination and cohesion. You might have climate policy here that has five things, and then on the other side, you're going to be cutting your taxes on fuel, right? You can't do those two things at the same time that don't add up. All our regulations and rules have to work together. Fundamentally, if we're to do climate adaptation, the only way we're going to be able to be successful is if New Zealand is behind us. Everything that I heard today is there are a whole bunch of smart people who have no problem designing the financial funding tools that are necessary. If you show them what the problem is, they will fucking solve it. But we haven't asked them. We haven't created the incentives. If we're going to do that, I think what we have to be is climate adaptation must be transparent, it must be accountable, and it must be independent. We have to do something that takes it away from that political process. Because right now, the three-year cycle, our divided community makes it very difficult for us to do that. I don't think you should be pessimistic. Because climate change is happening. Adaptation is happening. The whole purpose for this conversation and the next and the next is how do we build on this and go from the Band-Aid approach to going to something that's much more systemic. That's your job. That's your purpose. The end result of this hui, the end result of the science challenge and what comes out of it must really be about learning the lessons of the next disasters so that we now we then have a systemic response rather than a reactive response. Thank you. Kopapa Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge. Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott Murray and Sally Owen. Our music was generously gifted to this project by Deep South Challenge's Pautikanga Ruia Aperahama and his brother Rania and comes from their album Whare Māori. Additional music is from Woodcut. Ngamahinui kia koutou katoa to all of those who gave us their time and expertise for this series.